0: I'm not sure if you are aware who it is that has the hardest job at church. You might say, well, a preacher, that's pretty hard. You gotta come up with something biblical and interesting and relevant and applicable to our lives. You have to do that twice a week or twi- uh, twice on Sunday, every week, week after week after week. That sounds pretty difficult, and some say, nah. He works an hour a week. Easiest job ever. You might think, well, the elders have the hardest job, church. I mean, they, they are here early. They're often the last ones to leave. When people come to them, most of the time, they only get problems and complaints, and they should do this, and they should do that. And No matter what they do, somebody's unhappy with what they did. There are two universal truths. That is, one... Nobody likes change. And two, nobody likes the way things are. So you see, elders can't please anyone. That's a really hard job, and maybe that's true. You say maybe it's the deacons or the ministry leaders. They have all these ministries, and they have their own responsibilities, work and family and all these things to do, but they still got to organize a ministry and make it go and make it be effective and keep control of their budget and and motivate volunteers, and they got to do this all in their own spare time. That could be pretty hard to do. But I tell you, among all of those people, I would say to you that... The person who has the hardest job at this church or any church is the treasurer. Treasurer's volunteer position. Greg Salmon would never tell you this, but I'll tell you. Uh, he easily puts 30, 40 hours a week in most weeks just collecting money, just tabulating checks, uh, just paying the bills. Just making sure staff gets paid. We thank you so much for that, Greg. Doing all those things, it's a high-demand, high-stress job, and people are always just asking you for something. You can see right here, this is a normal $20 bill. Hopefully you can see that. No, I'm not going to do an illustration. I just want you to remember the size of a normal $20 bill. Um. someone put in the plate this morning, they got going origami, and and they took a $20 bill and folded it up like this. You can't see it. I mean, it's, it's incredibly small. It will take some work to undo that. I think poor Greg, he's just got one more thing to do. I personally like to, you know, if you look over, and I know most of you do, and you look at me during the contribution, you think, oh, look at that preacher, he can't even put down his phone for a little bit challenging and all of us to give it up, and he won't even get off his phone during worship. And I'll tell you that when I'm on my phone during worship, the reason is I'm doing electronic giving. I open up the Church Life app, open the menu, go to the Give section, and I give instantaneously. Because uh, I, I know it uh, is a modern way to do it, but it saves Greg from doing having to do about four things with my check. He did not have to tabulate it. He did not have to enter it in. did not have to have a team or someone, him or someone else, deposit it. It's just instantaneous. It makes his job a whole lot easier. Tonight we're going to talk about a treasurer. Uh, by the way, the treasurer we're going to talk about tonight is uh, much, much worse. <laughs> Greg Sandlin is a rock star. And if you have any interaction, and Sean Lytton, by the way, also does a great job uh, working with all the Know Your Bible stuff. But you need to know this is not why the church runs, but, you know, money's not everything, but it's reasonably close to oxygen, some person once said. Uh, it's a tool that we use in ministry to make things happen, get things done. Uh, we've seen that this year. We've... Uh, given lots of funds toward uh, the soup kitchen refrigerator, you know. Uh, given lots of funds toward Simple House, and going to do some things in Carpenter Place. Uh, all the good that they are doing um, has to have this to make it happen. And to do that, you have to have people who are trustworthy, and people who are integrity, and people who are honorable. People who don't, you know, it just looks like a simple green piece of paper. But you'd be surprised how many people have let a little green piece of paper or a coin or some form of payment absolutely wreck their faith. In fact, Paul warns uh, those who are rich to be careful because those who have, who have sought to get rich have pierced themselves with many griefs. You say, that's right, Toby. You preach to those rich people. Okay, I am. In this world... Living in this country, you're rich. You may not think that at all, but you are. You have clothes in your closet, extra food in your pantry. It may not be a lot, but you have a little bit of money in the account and a roof to sleep under. You're rich. So we're going to talk about not just the money that we use at church, but we're going to talk about the money that's in our hands. And to do that, we're going to tell a story about a daughter, a woman. And we'll get to her name in just a second. But I titled this lesson, The Prodigal Daughter. For a long time, I thought the word prodigal meant rebellious, sinful, because of the the famous story of the prodigal son. That's not what it means. Um, When you look up the word prodigal, maybe you're Googling it on your phone now, uh, it just means someone who is senselessly spending, who's recklessly lavish, who goes overboard in spending things that they shouldn't have spent. And so tonight, uh, we're not talking about the prodigal son. We're talking about the prodigal daughter. Because that's who Judas, the treasurer, accused her of being. And what lessons we might learn from that. You're going to turn to John chapter 12. John chapter 12 is where we are. Our key text tonight. As you turn there... You might even remember, and I won't sing it like I did this morning, but I can remember, as Brent mentioned Steve Allen, I can remember Steve Allen leading this song on a Sunday morning. God is calling the prodigal. Uh, Come without delay. Hear, oh, hear him calling, calling now for thee. Though you've wandered far from his presence, come today. Hear his loving voice calling still Calling now for thee, O weary prodigal, come. And so when we sing that song, it just in in the context, it seems like the prodigal is saying something more than maybe it is. But the definition is different than we usually assume. And so we're going to be there tonight. We're going to look at this woman in John chapter 12, verses 1 through 19. You're following along with me. Six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. One translation, Jesus there says, why this waste? He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. A keeper of the money bag, he used to help, as keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. Which just always seems to me like it was a lot of work raising him up while you're trying to kill him. Verse 11, for on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the presence of the Lord! Blessed is the king of Israel! Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first his disciples did not understand all this. Only Jesus, after Jesus was glorified, did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone out after him. All right, as we begin the story tonight, Mary pours this special oil. We're entering the last week of Jesus' time on earth, six days before the Passover. Uh, This would be, uh, if you didn't think about it, This would be a pretty hard dinner party to attend. Um, Of course, you're going to have Martha. We've already heard about Martha and Martha. And she's going to be worried about everything being perfect in the meal and all the preparations and being a hostess. That's okay, but she's going to be distracted. Lazarus is sitting next to you. And by the way, if you're at a dinner party, you don't want to sit next to Lazarus because whatever story you have to tell, you know. Lazarus is the the worst one-up guy ever. Uh, Well, that sounds pretty good. Almost as good as the time I came out of the tomb. Let me tell you about it. So Martha's there. She's distracted. Lazarus is there. He's dominating the conversation. And Mary is stinking up the whole house and avoiding all social graces by wiping Jesus' feet and cleaning him with her tears and pouring out perfume on him. Now, in the, the way that they reclined at the table, as the text says. Um, it wasn't something like we imagined sitting at a table, but in that day it was a, a lower table, and so everyone reclined kind of to their side, which meant their feet, everyone's feet, if you can imagine sort of the table in the middle, um, everyone's feet were kind of pointing outward like this, like this, so you can see it. Okay. So their feet would have been pointing outward, so Mary would have been out on the exterior of this, as the women would oft to do in that culture, serving and taking care of the needs, but she stops at Jesus' feet and begins to do something that well even caused Lazarus to stop talking. This is a very surreal setting. If you think to where we've come in this story, Jesus, an obscure Jewish carpenter uh, slash rabbi has now grown and grown in popularity, especially since raising Lazarus from the dead, which, if anything wants to attract attention, that will do it. And now he is a bit of an A-list celebrity. People think Jesus is the guy to be with. I mean, they are serious about the idea that he's the Messiah, he's the king. Now, their version of Messiah and king is very different than ours. They believe that this Messiah, I mean, if this guy can raise the dead, then let's make him king. Let's overthrow Rome. Yeah, they'll try to kill us, but we'll have a king who can raise us all up and just keep that perpetual army going. King Jesus, King Jesus, King Jesus. They would have said. They're, they're beginning to get excited about this idea. That, see, they, the idea of Messiah and Savior was very different. They, they saw him as a, a leader who was going to deliver them from their oppression, not... As a Savior who is going to give his life up for their sins. And all of this is, you know, it's amazing to me how quickly the attitude of the crowd changes within the process of a week, right? But, but that has a lot to do with our misunderstanding of what a Savior was or what the Messiah was. Even though they knew the prophecies and they understood, they misunderstood what his true purpose of delivering them from. It wasn't from Rome. It was from a worse enemy than that. It was from themselves and their sin, Here they are having dinner at the home of a former dead man. And that dead man just happens to be also at the table eating dinner with Jesus and his disciples. And Mary pours out this beautiful and costly gift of pure nard. And I went ahead and just sort of asked the question for you. Maybe you know, your Sunday night crowd perhaps. What exactly is nard? Uh, that sounds closely related to lard, which doesn't sound all that great a gift. Well, the wonderful thing about the Internet is I went out and bought – well, first let me tell you what it is, and then I'll show you. Okay, Spike Nard, also called nard, nardin, and muskroot, is derived from the nardostax jamotsini, a flowering plant of the Valerian family which grows in the Himalayas of Nepal, China, and India. The stems of the plant are crushed and distilled into an intensely aromatic, arab, amber-colored, thick essential oil. It is used as a perfume, as incense, a sedative, herbal medicine, said to fight insomnia, birth difficulties, and other minor ailments. Okay, So I looked it up, and I purchased off of Amazon a third of an ounce of spikenard, which is... Uh, would be, would have been the same thing. And I thought, well, this is good for me to smell, but I know all of you want some show and tell time. So here, here's how we're going to do this. I have put drops of spike nard on each of these blue little rags here. I'm going to start them on the front row. And those of you, once you get to the end, please be sure and pass it back. That's okay if you move around. And you can just open it up like a book. And take a smell, okay? And you can smell what Spike nard smells like. Now remember, it's uh, used to be cure a lot of things, insomnia, you know. Now I know some of you come to sermons to be cured for insomnia. <laughs> but you can use some Spikenard if you're suffering from that. If you're suffering from birth difficulties, I would advise that you should not be here tonight. So just pass those to the back, and this section over here is going to make me work for it. You guys can each have your own. Okay, so as you pass it down, you'll be able to smell the aroma of what this home would have smelled like. Now remember, um, the, the amount I purchased was a third of an ounce how much did Mary pour out a pint? Um, this, as I purchased it, is about twenty five dollars an ounce, so in today 's uh, doing t- math with today 's value be about four hundred dollars so here's Mary, and she brings this very expensive alabaster jar with with nard with spike nard and she begins to pour it out and everybody's kind of taken aback amazed at what she's doing now there are some clues in the text and i'm not going to you know stand hardcore on this doctrine but but it's clear to me as as i've studied mary martha and lazarus that i think they were people that we would call middle to upper class and possibly even wealthy Uh, about the the, the mourners that they had, the tomb that they had for Lazarus, this dinner, the size of the crowd that's there. These were people of some means. And she has put this away. Maybe she just thought, you know, this is a valuable thing. And maybe she thought she'd sell it, you know, divvy it up and, and sell it and then make a little profit on it. Or maybe she thought she'd use it for herself or give it away as gifts. But for some reason... When she came to that alabaster jar with spike nard in it she just couldn't bring herself to sell it to give it away or to use it for some reason something prompted her Mary save this save this for something really special and so here comes the dinner party she realizing what the guest of honor has done for her brother the friendship that they have, the closeness that they have had. um, She understands that Jesus is more than Messiah to her. He is her close friend. Um, Fast forward a week, I think the events that transpire will be hardest on Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And she begins to do this unusual thing for Jesus. And the first person that kind of balks a little bit is the treasurer. Now, Greg Sandlin wouldn't do this. Sean certainly would not do this. Sean is pro-Spikenard, aren't you, Sean? Yes, okay. <laughs> but it's a costly gift. It's an item of luxury. And according to the text... This was probably about a year's wages. Uh, the, the average worker of that day, sort of in the middle, received, would receive a denarii a day. So three, 300 denarii means this was close to a year's wage. I mean, it's actually probably almost exactly because you take out Sabbath, you take out the holy days when they wouldn't have worked. 300 denarii is pretty close to a full year. What happen if you? Um, I think the average, the average uh, salary is like uh, fifty two. I think it's fifty two thousand seven hundred. I, I may transpose one of the numbers here, but it's around fifty thousand dollars is the average. You take everybody, the highs and the lows, and you figure it out an average in the United States, about fifty two thousand dollars. And just one Sunday night, of course, I'm preaching along and I'm just going, man, I'm just preaching a stem winder and um, Norma Banning, she just, she is so touched by my uh, loquacious methods that she is absolutely, she just comes down and um, she hands me the keys and the title to a, a pretty nice BMW. Toby, I'd just like you to have that. And um, in this story, Sonny is the one who balks a little bit. Okay? <laughs> why this waste, <laughs> Norma? Why did you spend all this? I'm trying to give, give you an idea of the offensiveness that this beautiful act was to Judas's heart. Again, as Jesus said, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was cold and miserly, and because he liked to help himself to the money bag. And he really would have liked to see all of the value of that precious perfume donated so that he could manage it, see. What Mary did that evening around the table was a beautiful and powerful thing. Um, I would imagine as he was hoisted onto the colt, as they laid down the palm branches in front of him, and perhaps maybe even through the rest of the week, there was a fading aroma of the, of the gift that she had given. A reminder of the beautiful aroma that he had been in their lives. So Judas makes a stingy observation. Um, this is a hugely sacrificial gift. And again, Judas' questions her not because he cares about any sort of widows or orphans or any of that, but because he cares only for himself. Leave her alone, he says in verse 7. It was intended that you should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. And Jesus, I said sort of the beginning of the week, you'd probably smell that odor, but um, maybe even Jesus had something greater in mind. For he knew what was coming at the end of this week. What will take us another nine chapters to get through, um, he knows is coming. In a culture where they didn't embalm the bodies and where they were greatly dependent upon Perfumes and oils and spices. They would wrap the body, not tightly like an Egyptian mummy. That, that wasn't the idea, but they would just wrap it. And as they wrapped it, they would drop the oils and the perfumes and the leaves and the flowers that would give it a pleasant odor. And it would, to some degree, mask the decay that would happen very quickly. We remember last week in the story of Lazarus, as um, he's been there four days, and they don't want to open the tomb because they know what the smell is going to happen. These days, we don't think about that. I mean, they can embalm it, and, and with modern technology, they don't have to have a funeral for a long time. Not the case back then. It, it, it maybe Maybe it didn't just stay with Jesus the whole week. Perhaps this aroma was the fragrant aroma that, as they as they walked into that open tomb on Sunday morning. They breathed in. And they could remember the gift made by a, a woman who, whose brother was raised in a similar way. Maybe a, an aromatic. I mean, aroma is one of the most powerful triggers of memory. Uh, I, I'm not sure, I doubt anybody has a specific spikenard memory, <laughs> but if you did, you know, if if your boyfriend used to wear this, put a little behind his ears or something, I don't know, and and the instant you smelled that, it, it deeply connects to your mind uh, a flood of memories. Smell is very powerful that way. I'd like to think that a week later, as those women went to the tomb, maybe their memories were triggered as well. Jesus can't see any of that. He is so short sighted that he fails to see the bigger picture. He's caring only for himself, and we know that where that will end up with him. Let me take a, a, a brief tour here, a detour here, rather, uh, and talk and just say just a word about stewarding for other people. We've talked about it before from the pulpit, but a steward is simply a manager, and a person who's been given something that doesn't belong to them, and they're to manage it, to oversee it. Um, so maybe some of you have that sort of job, and you're responsible for some things. And, and if the books don't balance, uh, they're, they're going to come knocking on your door. If uh, the accounts fall through that were, once belonged to the company, they're going to want some answers. So a steward is an old term, but a manager is the modern equivalent. Judases here uh, that I'm talking about are people who are concerned with everyone else's stewardship. Um, You'll know a Judas when you hear phrases like, well, nobody needs that. If someone says that, a Judas was likely the one who uttered it. Judases are not concerned about God's work. They are only concerned with their own greed. Um, Judass get involved with what is a holy amount of something. What's a holy amount of house? Is 1,000 is square feet a holy amount of house? Is 3,000 square feet a holy amount of house? Is 10,000 square feet, is that a holy amount of house? See, Judass worry about things like that. What's the holy amount of car? Uh, Is it what you have? Maybe. Is it it more than that? A $100,000 Ferrari? Well, nobody needs that. Listen, that's not your concern. That that person is a, a, a steward, and they're responsible to God, not you. Judases are concerned only about other people uh, and not so much themselves. Romans chapter 14 verse 4 says this, Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master's servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. In the kingdom of God, there are uh, a great, diverse amount of Wealth and lack of it. And poverty is not necessarily a holy position, nor is wealth. Uh, These little pieces of paper that we can obsess over are simply tools. And, And some stewards have been given many talents. And some stewards have been given just a mediocre amount. And some stewards have been given very little. And why am I spending so much time on this? Because to warn you that there's an attitude in the culture that seeps into the church that says, you know, it's not right that there's a five, a three, and a one. And I'm here to tell you that the stewardship issue is <laughs> the stewards don't manage money for other people. They manage money for the Lord first. First. And so if you're a five-talent steward, then you have a great deal of responsibility. And thank you to those of you who do it well and take it seriously. I actually think it's very hard to have a lot of talents because when you take that responsibility seriously, um, it weighs on you. But if you're a one-talent servant, uh, that's okay Just make sure that you use it in a way that honors the Lord. There are people who, I mean, remember the story that Jesus told. The one talent servant was the one who messed up. He became so afraid of losing what he had that he buried it, and he forgot that it wasn't his to bury. So so may we be very careful ever about worrying about other people's stewardship because that was the attitude that Judas had. 1 Corinthians 4, two says, those, It is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I don't care what your income is. I ask you, are you being faithful to God with it and with using it how he wants it used? So uh, your concern is not other servants but your own master. And your job is to multiply your master's gifts and use his blessings to bless him. Unhealthy ideas of stewardship lead to judgmental spirits, uh, the, the, the false doctrine that wealth is evil, hoarding, miserly attitudes, and a fear of spending anything. Enough on that, uh, but I, I did want to get a little bit into Judas's heart there. Number three, Jesus came as both Savior and as sacrificial offering. Uh, Jesus is very popular, as we say. We think of a big temptation. If he, if he was tempted, we know that he was. But the scripture doesn't always tell us. But I think this could have been a big one. The temptation at this point to become their leader. To become their master. To become their ruler. To become their potentate. Whatever it was that they wanted. Uh, Jesus may have been tempted. I mean, that was how Satan began with Jesus. Bow down to me. I'll let you have all the kingdoms of the world. Jesus' enemies now want to kill Lazarus because Lazarus from uh, was raised from the dead. They are concerned not about Lazarus. They are concerned about the crowds that Jesus is drawing. The very next day, Palm Sunday, what we call it, uh, modern, it was the beginning of the week, But it was also the beginning of the end for Jesus and his public ministry. He is publicly proclaiming to be the Messiah and the Son of God and the true Passover Lamb. For Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed, Paul would later say to the church at Corinth. The Jewish leaders wanted him dead. But at this point, that was hard to do. So what did they have to do? They had to turn the crowd. They had to turn these people They were surrounding him and following him and turn them against him, which they would successfully do. Hosanna, as they cry out, the translation of the Hebrew word is, give salvation now. They're crying out for salvation. They're saying, this guy is it. Again, they had the wrong idea about what salvation was, but they believed that Jesus could provide certainly salvation from Rome and maybe others. Look how the whole world has gone after him, the Pharisees say. Crowds are siding with Jesus, at least with this point. They believed him, they trusted him, they were ready to follow him. I I think most anybody in that crowd would have followed him if he had marched against Caesar. And that's why I say there was a big temptation there. Um, And the Pharisees, of course, thought that the crowds of Jesus meant they were losing something. Both the crowds and the Pharisees deeply misunderstood Jesus' purpose. Who, who best understood Jesus' purpose? In my mind, it was Mary. It clicked that he was the resurrection and the life. That he was their hope, not just for this world, but the world to come. Well, let me finish by giving three applications. Number, four, number one, bless Christ by giving him your very best. Um, Colossians 3 says, Whatever you do, do it with all your might. Work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you're serving. We should be good stewards with our work and in whatever we do. Think what you're going to do this week. Work, relationships, friendships. Are you going to give your very best because of what Christ has done for you? Number two, don't be a prodigal of his blessings. Count your blessings, but don't stop there. Use the blessings that you've been given to bless Jesus and his kingdom. Uh, from a, a spiritual perspective, to not use the blessings of God is to waste them. Matthew 25, verse 21 His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little, and I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. You see, Judas saw what Mary did as being wasteful. Uh, But God saw what Mary did as very good stewardship. Because she used the perfume exactly as God desired it to be used to bless and to glorify his son. And finally, let your lives be a fragrant offering. Now, the scripture is clear that we are the aroma of Christ. Um, You can almost smell a little bit of that spikenard just from all those six little uh, samples that we sent around. May your lives this week be a similar aroma of Christ. Paul wrote this, thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death and the other a fragrance from life to life. May we steward well our aroma as we live for him. Tonight I hope we will take. Seriously, the lesson that Mary learned to use what God had given her in a way that blessed and honored Christ. If you have not yet to begun to serve Christ, if you not confessed him as Lord and put him on in baptism, I want to call you to do that. It's the best decision you will ever make, as Dakota could have told you this morning. He is forever different and changed, and his relationship with his dad and with all of us has changed because of Christ. You can have that freedom and grace tonight if you're ready. And if you have had that relationship but you are struggling, maybe you've got Judas's heart, maybe you've had a selfish attitude, and you need to set things straight, you'd like for our prayers and encouragement, uh, we're glad to help you with that. Whatever need you might have, please come meet me down front. I'll be glad to help you as we stand and sing.